0: don't have immediate control meaning she asked about a leader who was just elected into her country who she knows through policy through decisions is one who is harmful for the people harmful for the natives harmful for the environment and what do we what do we do about that so there are there are situations where we don't have immediate control meaning we had a vote we used our vote the election didn't go the way we wanted it to but that's just that's just one example there's a lot of other examples in our world over things over which we don't have immediate control in that minute what do we do about it well it's an important question because we're seeing a lot of that in the world and i'm I'm deeply committed to the fact that the highest answer to this is not how can I find peace in the midst of leaders who are making decisions to ruin our environment. Leaders who are making decisions that are perhaps in favor of a tiny, tiny, very well-to-do minority not in favor of a much larger less well-to-do majority i do not believe that the answer is just how can i sit in enough peace to wait this one out we we are being truly called upon to act in the world and every spiritual teaching that i know is in line with that is in line with standing up, right? The Bhagavad Gita is told in a battlefield. It's a battlefield of Arjun and his brothers, the Pandavas, who are going to war. Well, they're good guys. They're not, they're not after somebody else's money. They're not after somebody else's land. They're not, they're not stealing. They're going to war in order to restore Dharma, in order to restore righteousness, in order to bring back light. And this is what this is what Lord Krishna, the divine on earth, tells them they have to do. And I think I think there's a reason that our scriptures are given to us in these situations, right? So we have the Gita given to us in the midst of the battlefield. We have the Ramayana given to us with its own own war. We have so many teachings that come from, from these contexts absolutely to remind us the spiritual life, living a Dharmic life, is not about running away. Arjun wanted to. He finally says to Krishna, okay, forget it. Let them do whatever they want. I know they're wrong. I know they're stealing. I know they're harming, but forget it. It's not worth it. I don't wanna go to war. And Lord Krishna says to him, basically, not so fast. You don't get to make that decision because you are fighting this war not just for yourself, It's not about your land or your kingdom you're fighting this war on behalf of Dharma and it is your Dharma to do so I deeply believe that the wars that we are being called upon to fight today are not those types of wars we're not we're not fighting at this moment over kingdoms and where we're drawing boundary lines. But there are wars to be fought. There are wars to be fought of dharma, of righteousness, which includes within, absolutely, and also without. Righteousness includes compassion. It includes nonviolence. Nonviolence. if I'm walking down the street and someone is beating a child an old lady a helpless person to death for me to walk by and not stop it is violent if I'm walking down the street and someone is beating someone a lady a man anyone who cannot protect themselves, who needs my help, and I don't help them. That's violent. To have the capacity to fix, to restore a situation and not use it is violence. If somebody in front of me is having a heart attack and I don't help them, that's violence. And today, There is so much going on in the world today. More people are suffering and dying due to lack of clean water than actually due to any other form of violence combined. So we talk about wars, and we talk about terrorism, and we talk about domestic violence, or communal violence, or gender-based violence, or whatever it may be. But actually, more people are dying due to lack of clean water. Today, to pollute our water bodies is violence. To make decisions about what we eat, what we wear, how we live, that pollutes our air, our soil, our water, such that other people are suffering and dying is violence. And so the question, circling back to your question of what do we do, is we stand up. But this is where we have to fight the inner war first. And the, the inner war is one in which we fight against our own, our own egos. Because the dilemma becomes, if I'm not grounded, if I'm not anchored, then I'm not actually going to be an effective warrior. If I'm fighting it from a place of anger, if I'm fighting it from a place of fury, if I'm fighting it from a place of lack of peace, I'm not gonna be efficient or effective. What the world needs today is not more people with picket signs. What the world needs today is actually people who are effective and efficient and clear and grounded and not just screaming and yelling, but but actually able to make a difference. And that is what we need to do. And so our first step is we must find the peace. Not the peace in what that person is doing, not the peace that says this is right, but a peace that enables me to be able to move forward. Otherwise, I literally run around like the chicken with its head cut off. Otherwise, it becomes about me and my anger. Otherwise, I scream and shout, and at the end of the day, I may feel righteously exhausted. But I haven't actually made a difference. I remember when I first, first came to India, Pujaswamiji took me to see a, a group of 10 or 11 schools in a slum area that the head of a trust that was running these schools had come to him and asked him to adopt these schools because the trust no longer had money to run them. But children were coming every day. Teachers were coming. And so we went and we spent the day in slums, in horrendous situations with children who were so beautiful. And I won't go into the details of that story. It's a beautiful story, but a different story. But at the end of the day, I came back. We get back to the ashram in Delhi, and I'm sobbing. I mean, just sobbing. I cannot catch my breath because all I can think about is those children. And it's time for dinner, and I say, I can't eat any dinner. Oh, my God, I can't eat any dinner. How can I eat any dinner? These kids don't have any dinner, and oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And Pujaswamiji looks at me, and he says, are your tears helping them? And I said, no, but oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And he says, are your tears giving them dinner? Are your tears putting a roof over their heads? Are your tears doing anything for them? And I said, no. And he said, the only thing your tears are helping is your own ego. Through your tears, you feel like this incredibly compassionate being who cannot eat dinner because she's so upset that these poor children don't have dinner. And aren't you a wonderful, compassionate person who is so upset about those poor kids. I said, but that doesn't help them. He said, if you really want to help them, if you really have such compassion for them, eat your dinner, go to sleep early, and get up at 5 o'clock tomorrow morning and start figuring out how you're going to raise enough money to sponsor all of these schools. That is going to help them. And so that is this teaching. When we are so overpowered by our own emotional reaction to what's happening, we may feel like very good people because, oh my God, I'm so upset. How can this person be running that country? How can that person be committing such heinous acts? And we should be outraged. We absolutely should be outraged. We're not outraged enough, in my opinion. But. We have to find a stability within the outrage that enables me to actually serve as a channel for the divine will so that I know how to serve, how to act. It's not, contrary to popular belief, just about posting things on Facebook. It's not just about signing petitions online. Those are good. I'm not saying don't do it. Raising awareness is very important as well. But that's not going to give people water to drink. It's not going to get leaders like that out of office. Even more importantly, it's not going to change. The hearts and the minds of the people who elected him into office. You do not live in a military state. You do not live in a dictatorship. Well, now, but you you you, you have elected him in, and the situation the situation becomes, and this is it's an incredible realization for all of us in the world, is how can we spread love and peace? When this happened in America, I had a very similar reaction. And I then realized, okay, wait. What is it about the anger and the fear of the people of the nation that is leading them to make these choices? And how can we work with that, help people make choices that are in line, not just with their pocketbooks, but actually in line with that which protects the environment, in line with education for poor people, in line with health care for poor people, in line with opportunities for the underserved majority? But that requires us to come out of our fear. It requires us to come out of our bubble of scarcity, our bubble of, I have to protect me. Because if I'm living in survival instinct, I'm going to do whatever I need to survive. And that's the way that a lot of people in a lot of the world are living today, mentally. We've been so indoctrinated into this mentality of scarcity. And then leaders tap into that. And so what we need to do is whatever we can to help ourselves and then those around us break free from that model of scarcity. There is enough. There is enough for all enough. if we make more than enough, absolutely. You if we make the choices that are, that are right, because not just for ourselves, but actually for our, our greater self. But that's something that we only experience when we actually have a strong spiritual practice. Because until and unless I have that, this is only me. This is me. The people I'm connected to by blood or marriage, those are my family. But a spiritual practice enables me to realize, no, the world is my family. This is not just me. This is also me. And so your water, your food, your health care, your education, your opportunity. That's also that's also me. That's also self. So this is where we we do the inner work, such that we then can do the outer work. So both are required. So yesterday, I had touched upon the source of joy being within. And so he said, well, what about, what about joy that's the outcome of an experience? So that's what, it's, that's what it looks like on the surface. Here's how, here's how the mind works. And we take it as true because we've been so adapted to it for our entire life that we don't even question it something happens an experience happens we immediately feel either sad angry joyful grateful Frustrated whatever it may be depending on what's happened. We have a different reaction to that I'm waiting on the curb to catch a bus okay bus comes slows down nicely in front of me. I get on the bus. There's a seat right up at the front by the driver. I sit down. I'm happy, right? Very successful, <laughs> successful experience. I may not be blissed out, but I'm, I'm satisfied. What I wanted, it has happened. I'm standing at the bus stop waiting for a bus. The bus zooms right by me and doesn't even bother to stop. I'm annoyed. I'm angry, how could he not stop? The thing says here, bus stop, route 17, that was a 17 bus. How dare this guy not stop? Was he blind? Didn't he see me standing here? I'm furious. Bus slows down to pick me up, stops, I get on. There's no space to sit down. There's barely any place to stand. I'm okay. Made the bus, but I'm suffocated. The guy next to me smells. I really don't want to stand for the next 45 minutes. So I'm slightly annoyed, but I'll manage. Bus stops to pick me up. But as I walk to get on the bus, I slip on a banana peel that someone has left on the curb. I fall down flat on my behind. Bus decides, oh, I guess she's not going to make it, takes off. I'm now not only left by the bus, but I'm stranded, I can't get up. I burst into tears. Okay, worst day of my life, now it starts to rain. Okay. Four different outcomes of one situation, just waiting for the bus. Four different outcomes four different entire inner experiences. Satisfaction, anger, annoyance, and desperation. But the truth is that every single one of those outcomes has only to do with my own mind. Has nothing to do with anything that the bus did. The bus either stopped or didn't stop. Either was empty or full. There was either a banana peel on the road or there wasn't a banana peel on the road. I either stepped in it or I didn't step in it. There was no place in which I got actually injected with joy or satisfaction. Or frustration or anger or desperation. The bus just did its thing. The banana peel did its thing. The weather did its thing. The gravity of my body slipping on a banana peel did its thing. But my mind did its thing. And it's the its thing of the mind that determines whether I'm going to be Enjoy or not enjoy. And this is, it's very, very simple, but it's an incredible lesson if you can take it deeply about life because our greatest source of frustration, anger, depression is due to that which is happening around us. If you take 20 people who are angry, and you say to them, why are you angry, not one of those 20 people is going to say, because I have made a choice to be angry, because I have decided to ruin my day. Every one of them will give you some reason, some person, some experience that has made them angry. No. Now, if there had been a big puddle of water on the side of the road, on the, in the gutter, and the bus went by and it splashed the water on me, I would have been wet. The bus has the power to make me wet. It does not have the power to make me angry. There's no puddle of anger that the bus is going to splash on me that Despite my best intentions, I end up covered in anger. doesn't exist. Puddle of water? Sure. It's tangible. Spray water on me, I will get wet. But spray water on me, I will get angry? Where does that come from? Where's the, where's the puddle of anger somebody's going to spray on you or the puddle of joy somebody's going to spray on you? doesn't exist. And so it's only how we respond to what happens in life. And this is the really the greatest lesson. There's a, um, a beautiful beautiful saint who used to live right across Ganga from us. And he had a teaching that I've held very dear, and he always said, you know, I don't care how much money you make. I don't care what your title is in your career, but the only definition of success that means anything, the only definition of success that matters is how you respond to the inevitable times that the universe does not act the way you think it should. That's the only definition of success that matters. And so experiences don't give us joy unless there's some puddle of joy that's being sprayed on us that I don't know about, or some cloud that's raining down joy. We, we respond to situations with joy. We respond to situations with anger. And what's interesting is two different people could respond to the exact same situation in exactly opposite ways. Husband and wife, supposed to go to a party that night. Maybe the wife is an extrovert. She loves parties. She loves being with people. She's really looking forward to seeing everybody. She's a social butterfly. Maybe the husband is more of an introvert. If it were up to him, would really much rather spend the evening at home. But until he goes, you know, you make sacrifices in a relationship. (coughs) Suddenly, an hour before they were due to leave the house, they get a call that the party's canceled. One home, one phone call, one experience, two entirely different reactions. The husband is like, wow, won the lottery. You know, this is so great. We've got a night, get to stay home. And the wife is miserable. She was really looking forward to it. Now she's depressed. Now she feels lonely. It's only about how we we take it. And so in your life, Think about all of that that makes you angry. Think about all that that makes you upset. And then think about all the different ways you have to respond differently. Do you have a choice? Is there an alternative? This is my favorite question in the world. Is there an alternative? Because we get in such robotic, autopilot ways of living that we forget that we've actually got this incredible thing called free will. Somebody says something to us and we react. They do something, we react. And especially if there are situations in our families, or in our workplaces, or in our own lives, that are patterns, and we get ourselves in a situation where every time something happens, we respond in the same way. We react in the same way. And we literally forget there might be an alternative. I get angry, drown my sorrows in a six-pack. Or I get angry, I hit my family. I get angry, I take drugs. I get angry, I go shopping. I get angry, I eat chocolate cake. Whatever, whatever my way of dealing with my emotions may be, it becomes autopilot. Every time I'm angry, here's what I do. I get drunk, I use drugs, I shop, I gamble, I have indiscriminate sex, I hit people, I, either way. But it becomes this automatic thing. And the question always to ask yourself. And I don't care how many times you've responded in exactly the same way before. You still have a choice. Every time is a brand new time. Every time we have an option. But we have to create the possibility in our mind of there being an option. And this is where that great question, the million-dollar question, billion-dollar question is there an alternative? And what you'll find is there's always an alternative. You may not have the creative power in that moment to figure out what it may be. You may be so full of rage that the only way you know how to respond is hitting someone or numbing yourself, but simply to acknowledge that there is an alternative is that foot in the doorway to a brand new life. That foot in the doorway to a brand new way of living. And that's what's so exciting. Because every time, we have a new chance. But you have to create that moment of space that just says, might there be an alternative? And to allow yourself to realize that, yes, doesn't mean you're wrong, doesn't mean you're bad, doesn't mean you should feel guilty. It just means you have a choice. And how exciting, how empowering. Wow, I'm not a robot. Wow, I'm not a machine. Look at that. I actually can stop myself halfway through hitting someone. I actually can stop myself. Halfway through an alcoholic binge, I actually can stop myself before I yell at someone or in the midst of yelling at someone. I have that power. And that's an incredible awareness. And even if it's not an external reaction, if it's just internal, something happens and I become depressed. Because that's the other way. If I don't act out, it's going to come within. I just start to ruminate. Oh my god, poor me. Oh my god, I can't believe I'm stuck in this relationship. Oh, what, what a mistake I made. This, and I'm just getting older day by day. My god, I really, you know. And it just, we start to ruminate. Why did I get stuck like this? Why are my stars so bad? And, God, you know, when is, when is my, my astrology going to be better? When is, when is grace going to come in my life? Why doesn't God, I'm such a good person, why doesn't God take care of me? And, and that's just as much of a habit as abusing alcohol or drugs or sex or gambling or food. or just It's just a different, a different way. But we're just as stuck. And so whatever your way is, just ask yourself, is there an alternative? And then find out what it is. And there's always, there's always, as I said, an alternative. And alternatives usually include things like a nice walk in the park, a nice glass of cool water, some deep breathing, some meditating, a yoga class, hug from a loved one to go out and do something good for others. Go work in a soup kitchen for a few hours. Go read to blind people. Go plant some trees. Go play with the animals in an animal shelter. Just do something to get you out of yourself, to just change the entire framework of how you're And then what you'll find is no situation, no experience has the power to give you anything. It all comes from within. lesson is the universe always, always sends us in wonderful ways because that aspect of us being on is something we forget so much. Last night, if you were with us in the the satsang for New Year's that we did, I had shared the story of the man with the broken finger. And how, because his finger was broken, everything hurt. But he blamed everything in the world around. And it's a similar situation. You know, it's so easy to say, oh my God, this thing is broken. Or, oh my God, you know, Ed Manning the thing in the back must have, or here with, Sandeep and the camera, I mean, something, it would be, it's so easy to say, okay, the problem must be somewhere outside. The problem must be something that someone else didn't, didn't do right or the universe didn't do right. This piece of junk, forget it, it doesn't work. You know, so easy to just automatically shift into who's at fault without simply asking, am I even on? And just that little, that little, little question. And of course, here it was a very literal thing. There's actually an on-off button that wasn't pushed. But metaphorically in our lives, that's also there, is how frequently do we look outside of ourselves, blame something outside, when really it's just us who are in on. There's a a beautiful teaching, I I don't remember who said it, but it's a beautiful teaching that says, the only thing missing from any situation is what you're not giving to it. And that's... That's the same teaching here. So what's missing is, ah, not on. Well, okay, here it was the button. Easy. But if you look inside, there's also, there's also the inner button. Have I turned it on? Have I actually said, yes, okay, go, on, to the truth of who I am? Have I said, yes, go, okay, on to the invitation that the universe is giving us all to create our own lives with it? And if not, well then sure, I can, you know, have the best technicians in the world running the best aspects of you know, the sound or the camera or the lights or the live feed or whatever it may be. But if I'm not on, none of it's going to work. The absence of that that onness is critical. And so it was a beautiful, beautiful lesson. We don't usually start satsang with a, a lecture, but I couldn't couldn't quite help myself. It was just such a a perfect example that the universe gave on this New Year's Day of when something goes wrong, ask yourself the first question Are you on? Before looking for something else to blame, before looking for someone else to blame, before Losing your head or losing your heart or getting frustrated or depressed or deciding that the entire universe or The universe of technology is against you or whatever it may be Before any of that before reacting at all Just ask yourself Am I even on? Have I even walked into this situation on? And if not then let me do that first. Before before looking anywhere else. First question about animals in general being attracted to spiritual energies and coming when Puja was doing sadhana absolutely it's true are they coming out of curiosity or are they coming drawn by a spiritual energy I can't say there's a great a great story of Paramahansa Ramakrishna actually Negotiating a disagreement between snakes and rabbits in each of their languages. I won't tell the whole story but that you, you get the gist of it. I don't have that ability. I cannot tell you that I, that I know exactly why the animals are drawn. But they absolutely are. And it may be both. It may be some part curiosity. Some part being drawn by a, a spiritual magnet. Some part being drawn by just an incredible energy that they don't even necessarily know is a spiritual energy, but just literally pulls them. Maybe being drawn by love. I mean, we, we are drawn to the presence of holy people. This is why as long as there have been holy people, there have been people being drawn to their presence. Long before they had you know, social media pages telling people where they were going to be and that they could come. There's, there's something that draws people to a holy presence, to holy energy. We want, we want to be near it. Now, perhaps we make much more of a conscious decision than the animals do. We say, oh, God, it feels really good to be in that presence, really good to be in that energy I want to go. Maybe for the animals, it's less conscious. But we all feel it. You feel, oh, I just want just to wanna be in, the, in that presence. And there have been many, many great masters throughout the ages who haven't even given teachings who have basically just just sat in in silence but just to come and sit in the presence is enough so it doesn't surprise me that animals also are drawn by that energy you must have seen we have we have dogs come through artie all the time and literally plop themselves down in the middle of artie and kind of go to sleep on the steps as though there weren't hundreds of people sitting around them singing and waving lamps and stuff. So that, that happens very, very frequently. Now with regard to the cow specifically, well, the cow is a, a sacred animal in the Hindu tradition because she is the, well, there's, there's, scriptural stories and scriptural references to the cow. But the the bottom line of what that's about is the cow as the, the giver of all. The cow is the one who, through the milk, provides nourishment, through the urine, provides medicine. Cow urine is actually a very, very, very powerful medicine. Walk into any of these Ayurvedic stores and you can buy bottles of it. People, people drink cow urine every day. Yeah, I mean, it's, for those of us not from this culture, it sounds very strange, but it's considered to be a very, very, very potent healer. It's also a very potent natural antiseptic. Use it to clean you know, countertops and whatever. It's, a, it's an antiseptic. So the urine is, is powerful healing. The, the cow poo, the gober, is used for cooking. It's used in, you know, Pujaswamiji's hut is made of it. It's a fantastic organic fertilizer, so for our fields, homes, we're lined with it. Keeps away the bugs, it stays cool in the summer and warm in the winter. So the cow is seen as this incredible being that just sort of whatever comes out of it is of great benefit to others. And that it's really the only, the only creature that serves those who aren't its own. Other, other species serve their own children, but the cow is the only one who has always served others, who produces way more milk than the calf can drink. I mean, like here, for example, in our, in our cow home here, which is the only place that I, I drink milk in the world, the, cow, the calves drink first. And when they're done, whatever is left is what comes into the kitchen here. And it's, it's a lot. And so the cow feeds its own and then feeds all. And so it's really seen, that's why, that's why they say mother cow. And, and Hinduism is a tradition that really worships that mother energy. The divine feminine, that, that energy of, of just giving and creation. For me, on a separate level, for me what makes the cow so, so special is... It feels to me like the absolute epitome of what we are looking for in meditation. Drive through any crowded street in any big city of India, I mean, drive through Delhi, for example, and you see in the midst of these massive roads with traffic and horns and everything driving in every direction, and the cow is sleeping in the middle of the road. I mean, it's it's amazing. And, The cow is not a stupid animal. It's not that it's unconscious and doesn't hear the honking and doesn't know that it's being surrounded by all of these cars. It's a very, very smart animal. But you literally, like, you know, here sometimes even, we'll be coming to the ashram and there'll be cows walking. And you'll honk the horn and they don't budge. They know it's not going to hit me. Literally, somebody's got to get out of the car and kind of (laughs) convince the the cow to kind of mosey on its way so that the car can pass. And so for me, what actually makes the cows so, so special is that ability to really be still in the midst of chaos. I mean, we talk a lot about peace in the midst of chaos. And the cow is just, for me, the most enviable example of that. I mean, to be able to take a nap in the middle of a Delhi street. You know, so, you know, so many people will come to me and they'll say, Oh, I can't meditate here. It's too loud. <laughs> There's, you know, this spiritual program going on and that's going on and people on the road and what? But the cow... Cow has no problem. Cow can sleep, cow can meditate, cow does everything in the middle of the highway. So for me, for me personally, that's actually why why the cow feels very special is I look at the cow all the time and it just it renews my my vigor for a a deep spiritual practice that maybe someday I too will get to a state. Where should I find myself sitting in the middle of a Delhi highway? I would be able to have the same mental equilibrium as if I were sitting on the banks of Ganga or sitting in a garden someplace because that's an incredible ability. So consider, consider your New Year's ceremony blessed by the energy of... Peace in the chaos. The energy of what Pujaswamiji calls noiselessness amidst the noise. That inner inner noiselessness. Such that when you go back, just keep keep remembering that cow. And how can how can you in this new year take her energy? Her energy in with you. Fortunately most of us are not required to nap on delhi streets we're simply required to navigate our own lives but if we can do it with the the stillness and the peace and the inner well-being of the cow we would all be in great shape so consider that a very great blessing the blessing of abundance blessing of nourishment and a blessing of peace in the chaos. Experience is interesting, and the question takes us to a very interesting place. She said, when I used to meditate, on my third eye, I used to see light. I don't see light anymore. Now I just seem to go somewhere, and I don't know where I go, and I don't know what happens, and then I'm back in my body. And when I said to her, okay, and so what's the problem there? She said, well, I don't know where I go. These are the games of the thinking mind that does everything it can to pull us out of spiritual experience. What do you mean you don't have a name for that? What do you mean you can't explain that? What do you mean you don't understand it? Therefore, it must not be real right? That's, that's what the thinking mind does. We're in the midst of this incredible experience and the thinking mind goes, huh, I wonder if this is what samadhi is. Yeah, they said samadhi is going to be something. I'll bet I'm having samadhi. Wow. And then boom, of course, you're out of it because you can't simultaneously be in samadhi and be trying to figure out whether you are in samadhi. So these these are the games that the thinking mind plays on us. If when you meditate, you find that you go somewhere, as you said, and you don't know where it is, and you don't know who you are, meaning, if I can put words in your mouth, but stop me if they're wrong, you dissolve. <coughs> the part of you that has got a vice-like death grip on reality is no longer able to hold on reality slips through the wheels of the vice slips through your thinking mind and just is and you're not even aware of it until you have come well, that sounds to me very beautiful. Yeah, beautiful I, would, I would worry more about my drive to name it and understand it than I would worry about what's happening. There's basically nothing wrong that can happen in meditation unless you find that every time you come out of meditation you've actually got shopping lists and to-do lists i mean if you find if you find that you're spending your meditation making shopping lists you may want to rethink the practice or just you know start a practice of making a shopping list before you meditate so that it no longer has to be done during your meditation but other than that there's nothing that happens that's wrong some people see light. Some people see lights of certain colors. Some people see shapes. Some people see nothing. There's nothing that's right or wrong. There's not, there's not a ladder that says, oh, if you see this, you're really advanced. If you see that, you're, you're still kind of in the beginning stage. Meditation is taking you back to the truth of who you are. And it comes through a lot of ways. It interacts with a lot of things. It interacts with our subconscious. It interacts even on the most basic level with light from the outside coming in through our eyelids. I mean, just the most purely physical, neurological level. But that which happens inside of us, that's what's important. And so if you find that you are dissolving into spaciousness, dissolving into nameless, formless being, well, that's beautiful. Stay with that. Do not allow yourself to get worked up by the thinking mind saying, but what are you going to call that? What does that mean? What is that? The most beautiful things in life, from love to spiritual experience, are things that were actually really very inadequate, at properly describing, properly naming, properly boxing up. It's almost like the more beautiful something is, the less easy it is to stick it in a box. Frustration? Easy. I know that box. Greed? Okay, I know that box. Jealousy? I know that box. But divine intoxication? Well, that's kind of a different sort of box. It's not really a box. And so the deeper you get into that space, the fewer words there are going to be. It reminds me of my, my favorite story of Paramahansa Sri Ramakrishna, an incredible, incredible mystic. And he, he, just, he used to go off into these, these states of samadhi, of trance, of divine intoxication. And his his disciples were were begging him one day to please share with them what his experience was, what was he feeling. And so oh, and, and, and about the chakras and to tell them about the different chakras and the different energy levels and what it felt like to move up. And so he starts low and he takes them kind of one by one and what it feels like and what it looks like. And then he would just go into his trance. Long before he got even, you know, halfway there, He, in his ecstatic trance. And the devotees would just sit around and wait for him to come down. And then he would start all over again. And then same thing would happen. He would get kind of halfway and go into his trance. And finally... Finally, he looks at his disciples with tears streaming down his face, and he says, I'm trying to tell you. I want to tell you, but the mother just won't let me. So there's, there's a historical precedent for being speechless. Don't worry about that. It's beautiful. Just keep doing whatever you're doing.